I never get tired of listening to someone's story about how they came to faith in Jesus. And I never get tired of seeing stories like that with uh, folks from Foothills going out and serving in ministry and mission. A place like Rio Vista, it's very encouraging to see both of those things. And I can't wait for the next service to see those baptisms as well. So you're, you're here on a really good morning, I think, right? And uh, I'm glad that you're here. Hey, let's open the Bible together to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 is on page 914, if you're using the Bible there in the pew rack. And if we've not met, my name is Brian, and I'm one of the pastors here. Hey, have you ever heard of a growth spurt? Ever had a growth spurt? Ever had a child that had a growth spurt, right? Uh, growth spurts are really something. You know, they, they can be beneficial. There was a guy, his name is Anthony Davis. Anybody know that name, Anthony Davis? He's 6 feet 11 inches tall. He's a power forward, an all-star power forward for the New Orleans Pelicans. It's an NBA franchise. What? Okay, well, he's a Laker now. Who pays, attention to the, who pays attention to the NBA? Obviously not me. When did he go to the Lakers? Anyway. Hasn't helped them, has it? Anyway. Thank you. Let's try that. I know this about Anthony. He grew eight inches in 18 months in high school. Eight inches, that's a growth spurt, right? When he was a freshman in high school, he was really good, and a school called Cleveland State offered him a scholarship. By his senior season, Ohio State and Kentucky were offering him scholarships. Now, no, you know, I'm not trying to put Cleveland State down, but I'm just telling you, there's a big difference, right? Sometimes growth spurts are beneficial, and sometimes they're costly. And if you've had a kid that's gone through a growth spurt, you know what it's like to go trade in a new pair of shoes for a newer pair of shoes, and a new pair of pants for a newer pair because they just grow out of them so fast. And they can be, caught, they can be painful, right? I mean, growth spurs, it can physically hurt to grow that quickly. And in this text, we're talking about some growing pains in the life of the early church. They, they don't have problems with parking. They don't have an issue of an overwhelmed nursery. But they have other issues that happen in the life of a church when you're growing. For instance, sometimes genuine needs get neglected in a growing church. Sometimes things get overlooked and people are not cared for to the best of the church's ability. Sometimes leadership is swamped and overwhelmed. Sometimes unity can be threatened in the life of a church that's not growing. Sometimes grumbling can get started and complaining can kind of simmer below the surface and even spread. And most of all, the, the church can get distracted from its mission in the world. All of those things are, are issues that churches that are growing have to deal with, and there are certainly others. Like bookends in this text, in verse 1, particularly verse 1a, and then in verse 7, Luke, who wrote Acts, gives us this, this picture of a church that's thriving, that's growing, that's full of life. More and more people are coming to faith in Jesus. Even some of the priests who were very antagonistic to the gospel have come to believe in Jesus. And in between, Luke uh, is showing us these growing pains. All of those things that I live, they're, they're suffering from all of those. And I think that at the center of them is this, is this, well, this issue of being distracted from the mission. When you think about where we've come from, particularly since chapter 2, when the church is born and it gets up and going, you see that, it's, that Satan has been at work trying to thwart the gospel from being unleashed through the church into the world. 
And so he's tried to persecute them in chapter three, in chapter four, in chapter five. He's tried corruption from within in chapter five with Ananias and Sapphira. And now he's trying to distract them from the mission. He's trying to get them off of center. And so as we look through this passage, I want to do it under these three headings. There's a problem here, there is a response, and there are some results. And as we do that, we're going to see this issue of distraction from the, from the ministry of the gospel as a church, and we're going to see how they handled it and what we ought to do to handle it ourselves. So let's look at verse 1. Now in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, and here it is, you can circle this, a complaint. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So there's a growing church, but there's grumbling happening at the same time. And there are two groups of people here, the Hellenist widows and the Hebrew widows. The Hellenist widows are, are Jewish women, but they're Greek speakers. They're, the Hellenists were Jews who were really scattered across the Mediterranean, uh, and they speak Greek primarily. While the Hebrew widows are women who probably have lived all of their life in Israel, they speak Aramaic. These are very different kinds of people, and at the same time, they have some things that are very significant in common. For instance, both of these groups of people have come to faith in Jesus Christ. They're brothers and sisters in Christ, these Hellenist Jews and these Hebrew Jews that are in the church together. They also share a Jewish heritage. There are some things that they have in common, but they do have these differences that go beyond language. Because the Hellenists look at the world and they relate to the world in ways that are different. They think about the world in different ways than the Hebrew Jews. We tend to elevate these kind of differences ourselves in relationships. We, we elevate them to the place of right and wrong if we're not careful. And when we do that, a church can turn in on itself and get distracted from its mission in the world. Cultural differences go beyond our own ethnic identities. So if you moved here from California, or if you moved here from the Carolinas, you probably suffered a little culture shock, because this is Arizona, in case you haven't checked. <laughs> and we're just different here, we're unique here, right? And churches themselves have their own unique culture. You could come to Foothills from a church somewhere else in the city and encounter a kind of a different culture. What we have to be careful is, is not elevating cultural preferences to the level of biblical expectations in the life of a church because the adversary loves to exploit those kinds of differences and we may not be wholly comfortable with some of those things but he loves to exploit them to get us all stirred up about them thinking well this is right and this is wrong. No, it's a preference that you have. It doesn't have anything to do with a biblical expectation. And so he talks to them. He says the adversary wants to exploit that. And when he does, he turns the church in on it itself. And they tend to be distracted from their mission because we're trying to carry out and trying to deal with this issue. Now, some of the Hellenist widows are genuinely missing out on this daily distribution. There is a legitimate problem here. Why, why was that happening? Why, what, what's their problem? Why do they need help? Well, they need help probably because they've come to faith in Jesus. And so they're no longer eligible for the support that they could have gotten and probably were receiving from their local synagogue. They were on a list there and they were being careful, but now they've got faith in Christ. They've proclaimed their allegiance and their loyalty to Jesus. They've lined up with this church and now they may have been put out of their own synagogue. And maybe they don't have family nearby who will care for them. So the church has literally become their family. And so that's who needs to take care of them. But the way this complaint comes to the fore is really a problem. 
The problem is legit. They, they need help. But the way the complaint came, came to be or came to be raised is an issue. The word complaint, that's where we get this, it, it means to murmur or to grumble. It's the kind of complaining and grumbling that kind of happens below, below the surface. It, it takes place in little impromptu meetings in hallways. It might happen with a small group of friends or maybe even a large group of friends. But the fact of the matter is complaining and grumbling in the life of God's people Either the New Testament church or the Old Testament covenant people of God. It's not a new thing. Let's go back to the Old Testament for a moment. God sets his people free from slavery in Egypt after generations of being enslaved. And they start to complain because they're on their way to the promised land. And food is the issue. Look at this text from Exodus 16. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. Life is tough for them. They're, they're wishing for death. They said, there we, we ate pots of meat and ate all the food that we, we wanted. They're thinking back about how good it used to be in Egypt under slavery, but they were fed well. So they were complaining, and when you read through that text a little deeper, you understand what's really devastating here is that they're not necessarily really pointing the finger at Aaron and Moses. The text tells us later that they're really complaining about the Lord and about how he's treated them or how he's not treated them. They're, they're complaining about what God's done. Complaining is so self-focused, it's so self-absorbed, that it takes our eyes off of the mission of God and what God is doing in the world, that he's alive and well and that he's at work even in the midst of all of this. Paul, the apostle, refers to that incident when he writes to the Corinthian church. And listen to what he says to them. He's warning them about grumbling. Look at this. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. That's kind of the banner under which all these other things are gonna fall that we wouldn't desire evil like they did. And what does that look like? Well, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happen to them as an example, but they are written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. In other words, time is coming short. We're supposed to be the people of God. The Apostle Paul is pressing in on this Corinthian church. We don't have time to be doing foolish things like putting Christ to the test or certainly grumbling and complaining. God takes those things very seriously. This was given for our example. It's a bad example. It's like a massive red flag. Do not follow in these people's footsteps. Put it away from yourself. And again, in chapter two of Philippians, Paul writes to that church and he uses the same word that, it, that Luke uses here in Acts 6. He tells the church to follow the example of Jesus, to humble themselves, to be selfless, to give themselves for the sake of others. And he says this, do all things without murmurings or disputings. In chapter 2, verse 12 in Philippians. So whether it's 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, or yesterday, or maybe even today, the temptation to grumble and complain is going to be there. So here's a, here's a warning for us. Here's a, here's a word for us. Don't harbor, don't harbor an attitude that is ready to assume the worst. They forgot God's provisions. They started to accuse the apostles of really willfully neglecting them in this distribution of food, of really favoring one group over another. Complaining will do that. It will get you so self-absorbed that you start to point the finger at all kinds of people. Now, it was a legitimate need. 
These women needed support, they needed help, and it wasn't happening. But this wasn't willful neglect. It wasn't the apostles favoring one group over the other. It was likely a mistaken oversight. Why? Because this church is growing fast. And there are a lot of people coming into it, and the sheer numbers of this growing church is sort of swamping the leadership in a way. Instead of assuming the worst, give the benefit of the doubt to brothers and sisters in Christ in relationships. Boy, we could avoid so much conflict, so much angst, so many sleepless nights if we would simply not assume the worst and give the benefit of the doubt. If we would just begin there. If the church begins to grow, you find your own needs neglected, you find yourself wondering, how come someone hasn't paid attention to this? Be sure to check the attitude that says, I'm assuming the worst rather than giving the benefit of the doubt. And it doesn't take much, right? We don't know how long this went on. Was it a meal or two that they missed? Was it something more? We, We just don't know. But I know this, it doesn't take much often for us to kind of get started in this in this pathway. It might be something like a ministry that you're part of or that you lead doesn't get recognized or it's not on the same plane as something else that gets mentioned and you become upset or maybe a change happens and you're not part of that conversation for whatever the reason. Maybe just a mistaken reason, maybe an oversight. And we get kind of wound up about it and we start to kind of complain. Whatever whatever that issue is, we need to put that to death in our hearts. I need to put it to death in my heart. I can complain when things don't go my way or the way that I think things ought to go. I can complain and grumble with the best of them or the worst of them. But we have to put a check on it. We have to put to death that part of us that's too quick to assume the worst and too slow to give the benefit of the doubt, too too quick to grumble and complain. And by doing that kind of thing, to really sow division in the life of a church and create distraction by extension and too slow to simply ask for some clarification, for some understanding and to do that first. That's what we should do. The complaint is legitimate. The way it's raised was a problem. It threatened to turn the church in on itself, distract them from the main thing, which was gospel ministry. And so how did the apostles respond to this? Look look at what they do. Verse two, and the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, now, if you're gonna ask me, does that mean they called a meeting with 10,000 people? Because it says the full number of the disciples. I don't have the answer to that question. (laughs) You can look it up, all right? I'm pretty sure it was a big meeting. There were a lot of people there. They summoned them all there, and they said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And so here's the response. There, there are clear priorities that the apostles have, and they, they practice some wise delegation in the midst of, of all of this, I think. The apostles are clear, and they're really unashamed, aren't they, about their priorities, And when you think about it, it might be a little difficult, but notice the contrast in verse two. We cannot give up this for that. We cannot give preaching and teaching the word of God for the sake of waiting tables. 
They say it again down there in verse four. We're gonna devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So there are two ministries going on now in the life of this church and they're necessary. They both need to happen. There are needs that have to be met. There's the prayer and the word, that ministry, and then there's this ministry of meeting needs. But the apostles can't neglect one for the sake of the other. In Deuteronomy 10, we see how God feels about widows, right? He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. God is concerned for widows. His heart goes out to them. He intervenes on on their behalf. Woe to you if you do not care for widows and orphans. The scriptures tell us over and over again, we see the heart of God this way. And God wants his people to display his character just this way. And and I'm grateful, I'm thankful for some men in our church who pay attention to the widows who are part of the fellowship at Foothills Baptist Church. We wanna do a good job of caring for these ladies. Well, this is going on, and we know what God's heart is, but at the same time, the daily distribution that faced this church must have been so large that it would have interfered with the apostles' ability to do their ministry of prayer and the word, and so they needed somebody else to do it. I love how John Stott puts it this way. He says, the apostles were called to the ministry of prayer and the word, and they didn't have the liberty to be distracted from their God-given task. They didn't have the liberty to be distracted from their God-given task. There isn't any sense in the text here that the apostles somehow thought they were, it was like they were too big for their britches, we would say in West Virginia. Like this was beneath them to wait tables, to serve these widows. There's no sense of that, but they have limits. And I love how Stott puts it. They don't have the liberty to give up what God has called them to do, to do this other ministry that's good and right and necessary and needs to happen. And so they set aside others to take care of this important need. Let me say this, that pastors are not apostles, but pastors are set aside to carry out the ministry of prayer and word in in the life of the church. We, as pastors, are called and charged to preach the doctrines of the apostles of Christ to the church of Christ. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And so in that way, the priorities of the apostles that we see here very much ought to shape the priorities of pastors in a local church. I spend a fair bit of time in prayer and in, in preaching and preparing to preach and teach, but sometimes expectations can be a problem for me. Uh, pastors can be unrealistic. We can be unscriptural about how we set the priorities of our week and how we go about spending our time because we love people and we want people's needs to be met and we don't like it when we hear about a need that's gone unmet and we want to fix it and, and what is typical for most, I think most pastors in ministry is to plunge in and take care of it ourselves. Lots of us are really bad at delegation. We just as soon do it ourselves, put our hands on it, make sure that it's done and that we would say that it's done right, which basically means it was done the way that we thought it ought to be done, not necessarily that it was right or wrong. And so we can be bad at that. I can be bad at that, right? So we have these expectations that we put on ourselves and they distract us from the main thing of preaching and teaching and prayer. And at the same time, and now I'm gonna tiptoe, congregations can do that. Congregations can put expectations on the pastors and demand and expect them to be everywhere at once, as it were, to meet every need and to to respond to every need that comes up, causing them to neglect their primary calling of prayer and 
preaching the word. So we have this tension. We have to, we have to learn to live in it. We're not at liberty to be distracted from this ministry. We have to learn as pastors to say no to things that are important, that are necessary, that are needful. And there's a tension that we have to learn to live with in ministry because not everybody is going to understand why we make decisions the way we do. I think one of the greatest blessings in our, in our church is the team of, of nine elders, nine pastors that serve the church, vocational pastors, non-vocational pastors, however you want to look at it. But those nine elders, there's, there's a wonderful ministry of shepherding going on, and I'm privileged to be one of them, one of those nine. The, these are men who love Jesus. They love this church. They love the word. They want to lead by prayer and the ministry of the word. And I'm privileged to be part of them. It's, it's a wonderful thing. But beyond that team, there, there is another team, the deacons. Many people think that Acts chapter 6, these first seven verses are, are really the beginning place, the, kind of the seed of deacon ministry as it begins to be fleshed out in the local churches. You get deeper into the New Testament. And I think it's really amazing that here we are on the morning of a family meeting that will happen tonight where we're going to bring some names forward to the congregation who will be candidates to serve as deacons in the church. Do you feel like it's been kind of a long year for us as a church? I feel like it has, I'm just telling you. And uh, we started in January, remember? We said, hey, we've got three priorities. We want to we get someone who can come and preach for us in the absence of a lead pastor. We want to set up our elder team and get that ready to go. And, and we needed to do that first and then go find a, a search team that can then go and look for a lead pastor. And so we've, we've ticked off all of those things and we asked for you to be gracious and patient. And man, what, what a loving congregation you have been because we've done that. And we said in the process, we needed to get deacons. You nominated men to serve as deacons and men and women to serve as, as deacons and men to serve as elders all the way back in December and January. And we said, we want to put this deacon ministry thing off until we've finished all these other pieces. And those are all finished, and tonight is the night, and I'm, I'm excited about it. There, there are going to be some names of some men and women put forward to you that you nominated, and they've gone through a process now, and they're going to come tonight, and we're going to have... Uh, we have, and we're going to have, a stellar ministry of deacons who are caring for the practical needs of the church, just the way we kind of see it here with these seven men who are appointed in Acts 7. I, I love how God's providence works. We didn't, there was no way for us to plan that far in advance and say, we're going to land on Acts 6, 1 to 7, the morning of a family meeting when we present people to serve as deacons, but that's the way the Lord worked it out. Now, we have a mission as a church, right, to make disciples of Jesus. So prayer and the word has to drive the mission of the church because if you don't have the gospel going out, you, you can't do the mission. You can't carry out the mission of making disciples. That has to be a kind of central. Let's put it that way. It has to be central. But there are needs that have to be met. And pastors can't be ambivalent to the needs, and so other people have to take that responsibility, and that's where you see this terrific delegation going on. They're, they're so wise. Look at this. They, they choose seven men to do this ministry, but not just any seven, right? Look at verse three. Therefore, brothers, they say to them, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And then they draw the contrast. We ourselves will be devoted to the prayer and ministry of the word. Everyone was pleased with that, and they appoint these seven. 
One of the most interesting things about this text is that you should notice that those seven names are all Greek-sounding names. And the widows who are being neglected were the Hellenist widows, the Greek-speaking widows. And so isn't it wise and isn't it the work of the Spirit to bring together some Greek-speaking men who can relate to and care for the needs of these Greek-speaking widows in the life of the church, man? I mean, God is orchestrating that thing to, to bring unity back where division maybe had started and, and he's ministering to them, so it's really wonderful. And, and why such high standards for these guys? To, to be of good repute and to be full of the spirit and, and wisdom. You notice the ad didn't read, weak minds and strong backs needed for distribution ministry. And that's all you need to be a deacon. That's, that, that's not what it said, right? It was something more than that. They're looking for men who have a good reputation, who are filled with the Spirit, who do have wisdom. Why? Because this is a ministry of the church. And you recognize that there's an issue here. There's potential for division and lack of unity and distraction in the life of the church. They needed men who knew Christ and walked with Christ to move into this and help meet this need. I love how God brought all of this together. That's why the standard is high. That's why the, the folks who are being brought forward tonight, men and women alike, have been through a process to say, hey, are these people who have a good reputation are full of the wisdom and full of the spirit to do these kinds of ministries in the life of the church? And I ought to say this, right, uh, that what might seem like an apparent qualification for some people may not actually work out. It may not necessarily be the best criteria for determining who ought to be taking a ministry role in the life of a church. You may be a fantastic teacher, but you're not a good fit for student ministry. You may be a wonderful teacher, but you're not gonna be a good fit for leading a Foothills group or teaching children or preschoolers perhaps even. Because there's a big spiritual dimension to this. It's really at the core. When a church has a need and when there's a role to be filled, of course we want capable people, but we want spiritual people. We want people whose reputation and who are filled with the wisdom and the filling of the spirit in the center of their lives. That's wise delegation. And that's what we see at work here in the life of this church. And so the response was determined by these clear priorities. We have to take care of the prayer and the ministry of the word. That's at the center of the life of the church so that the gospel can go forward. But there are needs that have to be met. And so they, they delegate those who will meet those needs so that they're not distracted from their mission. And look at the results in verse seven. I love this. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, you only have to go back part of the way into chapter five to remember about verse 17 that it was the priests, those who were part of the Sadducees, who were the most antagonistic toward the gospel. And this verse says, a great many of the priests have become obedient to the faith. Something significant had shifted. Something amazing had happened here. These people who were so antagonistic at first and who were ordering the beating of these apostles are now crossing the line of faith in Jesus. Was it the example of the apostles going out with rejoicing when they had taken that beating? Was it the way that they saw the church handling this issue in its life and caring for the needs of people? Was that it? I don't know what it is. All we know is how Luke is commenting here and he's telling us something happened and hearts were changing. We know that it's the work of the Spirit that's moving in there. 
and changing their lives. And so if you've got somebody on your list that you've been praying for for a while and they're very antagonistic to the gospel, they've probably never beat anybody who shared the gospel with them. So just think about it like that, right? How antagonistic are they really? The Lord can open their heart. The Lord can draw them to Jesus. It's possible. Just continue to pray for them because these men had come to faith in Christ. It's really an amazing shift, an amazing change. God is unleashing the gospel into the world through his church. And and that's what we ought to see here. We believe in doing ministries that meet the needs of people. That's why we do this food drive with Rio Vista. We partner with them because they're a gospel-centered ministry. They're attached to a local church, the bridge. They're right over the mountain from us in South Phoenix where there are great needs. And so we want you to come and bring as much as you possibly can over the next few weeks until the uh, 3rd of November. We want to do it through that first weekend of November. So for the next couple of weeks, just let's fill this place up and let's meet some needs. Now that's short term, but many of you could give some time to serving at Rio Vista. They have all kinds of opportunities for volunteers in all kinds of ways to meet the needs of people there. Uh, Craig, that, that video that we saw, took his Foothills group down there on a Saturday, and they served. You could talk to anybody in this Foothills group. They'll tell you what it was like if you're a Foothills group leader. You might consider taking your group there on a Saturday morning and serving and caring for people. We believe in those kinds of ministries. We ought to do them. It exhibits the character of Christ, the love of Christ, and we do it in that place because we know the gospel goes forward from there. In February, we're going to send a team to Rocky Point to build a house. We do that because there are people there who don't have a good home to live in a sturdy structure to put their family in, to shelter them. And so we do it, and we partner with more ministries who partners with local churches there. So we get the gospel to these people. We meet a practical need. Needs are met. People are helped and served. Now, if you're going to go on that mission trip, you're going to work hard (laughs) for four days. You might get wet. You might be cold. You might hit your thumb with a hammer. Uh, There's all kinds of things. But it's going to be wonderful. And so if you want to be part of that team, you got to let us know. We would love to see you become part of that. These are ministries and need-meeting ministries that we want to lean into and we do as a life of a church. But there's every area of our church ought to be touched by our mission to get the gospel to people. And so uh, this morning I I came in about uh, 25 after 7. And I park out here on 21st Street and I was walking up the sidewalk and I see this guy uh, blowing off the sidewalk and he's got his hat on and he's got his bandana around his mouth and his nose and it's Greg Dries, right? And he's our facilities manager. Now Greg is on a salary with us. He's one of our staff, but we have other guys that do that as well. But even though Greg's on a, on a salary, he, he serves the life of this church and he does it so well. And, and we see those kinds of things happening all of the time. And anytime you go in and out of these facilities, you see paper or you see this or that, and you're kind of picking up and taking care of it, it's all part of really the mission of helping people be, be comfortable when they come in here. If you're serving as a greeter and you're out front on Sunday mornings and you're saying hello and you're helping people find their way through the facilities, or if you're teaching preschoolers or children or, or students, or you're leading a foothills group or you're singing in the choir and the orchestra playing an instrument, I think if it could be banged or hit or what, I think it was happening up here this morning, right? It's amazing. All of these kinds of ministries, personnel teams, stewardship team, trustees, all of this, all of these things are focused on the mission. We as a church believe that we're here for a reason, to engage people, to put Jesus first for the sake of others, to make disciples. And so whatever it is that you do, whether, you, whether you're back there sitting at the soundboard making me sound good, 
or you're working lights and making me look good or look better than I would otherwise. <laughs> All of these things go together to serve the mission. It ought to elevate whatever it is that you're doing. I want you to think in terms like that, in those big terms of vision. That's what it's about, making disciples. And when a church is blessed with growth, we can expect along the way that there will be growing pains. Now, we'll have modern church growing pains, like maybe a lot of cars in the parking lot or a nursery or a preschool that seems to be overwhelmed. But there will be those other concerns that are deeper, those pains that are, I think, even more significant. When leadership feels a little swamped or when complaining starts to rise up because needs have gone unmet, legit needs. And, and division is, seems to be opening up and we're just, we start to get distracted from the mission of the church. Growing pains will happen. So we have to take care in the midst of all of that. If we've learned anything, we've learned this, that God means to unleash the gospel through his church, through his people, into the world. And he's gonna do it through a people, right, who say, it's not about me. I'm gonna sell out for the sake of the mission, for the glory of God, and for the sake of people's lives. I want us to just pause for a moment as we finish this morning. And I'm just gonna ask you to bow your heads and, and let's think on this passage and let's think about how God might wanna work it into our hearts this morning for, for some life change. And there might be something in your heart this morning where you say, you know what, I have, to put, I have to put some things to death. When I see how the early church responded to these needs and, and, and really avoided this terrible distraction of gospel ministry. They leaned into prayer and the ministry of the word. They delegated this task. There are some things I need to put to death in my own heart. And maybe it's, it's being short-sighted or maybe it's being very self-focused or complaining about this or that. So I need to put that to death and I'm, I need to ask Jesus for the grace to not to assume the worst, but to give the benefit of the doubt. to do that with leaders, to ask a question rather than make an accusation when, when I feel like there's something that's slipped through. Perhaps the Lord is speaking to you about stepping up where there's a need in ministry and perhaps you've been asked to serve somewhere and you're feeling like, well, it, it's not necessarily leaning into my greatest capabilities I don't know that I have a passion for it. But there is a need among your brothers and sisters in the life of the church, so perhaps you would be willing to step up and do it at that level. It would be ideal to serve according to your gifts. It would be ideal to serve according to that which you're passionate about. But sometimes there are needs and you just need to step forward and do that. And if someone has asked you, they've prayed and sought the Lord, so perhaps you could serve in that way. Maybe you need to say yes to that. And if you could allow me to be selfish, I, I would ask that you pray for uh, the pastors, all of us, all of the, the elder team I'm talking about, that we would that we would exhibit wise leadership, that we would spend time in prayer for you, the congregation for the church, for our mission, and that we would lead well in the scriptures, through the scriptures. That we would be single-minded 
about our task, that we would uh, remember what Stott said, that we recognize we don't have the liberty to neglect the calling that God has given to us. But that other ministries where people's needs are being met are important and we should be wise about who we delegate those tasks to. So pray for us about that. Pray uh, for deacons, those who serve the church in these practical ways. Pray about those who will, you don't have their names yet, but tonight there'll be some names that you'll be given, those who are being put forward as candidates, that they would be men and women of good reputation, full of wisdom and the spirit to serve the practical needs of the life of this church. Father, we pray this morning as we've opened your word and and, uh, we ask that you would search our hearts by your spirit today and that through your grace you would allow us to put to death those things that get in the way. When we elevate our preferences to the level of expectations, when we say things are right or wrong when it's really something we prefer rather than what the scriptures say. And Father, help us to give the benefit of the doubt to one another even when we've been neglected, even when we've been overlooked. Father, I confess that's, that's not easy. Help us to remember the grace that we've been shown by you and to share that grace and to be free with that grace with others. Father, let us be a church that is not distracted from our mission, but that fulfills it in this community and to the nations. Father, we pray for those who will be put forward tonight to serve as deacons in the life of our church. We pray, Father, that you would give them the filling of your spirit and fill them with wisdom and that they would do that ministry well and that needs would be met and people would be satisfied in you above all else. Father, we pray for the unity of the church that none of us, that I wouldn't be guilty of sowing division or creating distraction. Forgive me for when I've done that. Father, thank you for this illustration, this picture that we can look back to, this snapshot in time of the earliest believers gathered as a church, led by the apostles. Father, we want to learn the lessons that are before us so that we can be a church that has the full impact of making disciples that you've called us to do it in this community and around the world. Thank you for your word this morning and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.